Hello, my name is David and uh, this is the next episode of Crumpy Old Coders. Um, this episode is about uh, uh, an open discussion about microservices architectures and uh, it's called microscopic, right? And with me as usual is Thomas. Uh, Thomas is uh, doing the heavy lifting today, I would say, right? Because I nearly, I did nearly have no time to prepare myself, right? So we, we went through through some ideas maybe 10 minutes before we started recording. But uh, yeah, Thomas, would you like to introduce yourself again? It's right? it's going to be fine. All right, I'm, I'm Thomas. I've done software for as long as I can remember, probably too long. Let's not go into the details. And yeah, we've come across... Uh, various architectures and the microservices architecture is the one we would like to have a little discussion about today. Cool. Um, okay, fine. So what we are going to do in the first step is maybe talk about some patterns, right? And uh, yeah, what are the typical properties of uh, of microservices, let's say, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, there are some, some kind of characteristics uh, that are defined by, for instance, Martin Fowler, right? Uh, there are different yes. guys that are kind of microservices superstars. Uh, yeah. Um, I think Chris Richardson as well, right? And Martin Fowler. Uh, those are two names which I jump into my mind, uh, um, yeah. at least, right? Uh, maybe, not sure if I should name other people, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> other influencers are available. But Martin, Martin Fowler is, is like a big celebrity, isn't it? It's, it's hard to do software architecture without coming across Martin Fowler, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So if he has a podcast, you better listen to his podcast for this episode. Oh my God, just... does he? Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll write I, that down. <laughs> I, I don't know. So let's, let's just continue, right? So let's hope that people find us interesting enough to stick with this episode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, don't. Go to Martin Fowler's website immediately. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, Um. so now uh, what we are discussing is uh, how to break up our systems into components. I mean, are specifically into components that are called services in this uh, sense, because uh, even if we had monolithic applications in the past, uh, they sometimes had already components, modules or something like that, right? But we are talking about services here. Um, we will discuss or, or let's say we will highlight that uh, such microservices are uh, all around business logic, right? So the way how yes. you break it up is not uh, basically artificially by some technical requirements there there should be some some business logic uh, boundary let's say and uh, yeah um, let's say typically uh, products not projects and uh, yeah small endpoints and dumb pipes but we will talk about what this means uh, in more details right so before we dig in or into it right uh, um, so what are microservices solving? So which problem do microservices solve? Um, okay, uh, yeah. Thomas. Uh, yeah, the problems that they solve, and this is for me the most sort of surprising or interesting thing, the problems they solve are not necessarily technical problems. They are organizational problems, sort of human problems, if you like, which is which is strange for a sort of technical architecture. But okay, so let's first things first, um, what are the problems? So the problems are applications start small and grow, 
right? The same, the same as companies. You have a little startup, you have one or two tech guys that write something and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And all systems internally sort of talk to each other. You have parts of the application, parts of the code that talk to other parts of the code. And as it grows and grows, you get this, this spider web of dependencies, right? And that makes it harder and harder and harder to make changes, right? Because if, if there's a little piece of code that could affect 200 other places in the application, then every change becomes more and more dangerous, more and more risky. And microservices are an attempt to solve for that. So you have this, as I say, this application that gets bigger and bigger. It's called a, a monolith is typically what this is referred to. And if the company grows, you might have the, the team grows, right? You might have multiple teams that look after the same application and these teams maybe want to make independent changes and maybe they want to deploy their part of the functionality independently. So the solution, the, the, the sort of the intuitive solution for this that immediately springs to mind, okay, let's divide the cake, let's divide the architecture and give each team their own little thing to look after. And this is what it is. This is what Microsoft uh, microservices architecture is trying to do. Right? You're such a do, Microsoft guy, man, right? <laughs> I, I, I keep saying Microsoft when I want to say microservices. It's so, uh, yeah, I'm, just, just, I'm just kidding. Everyone knows that you're now working for AWS, right? So you should replace yes. this this kind of stuff. By, uh, I, I should say, yeah. Amazon, I, I work, Amazon instead of Microsoft. Right? <laughs> That's right. So I work for Amazon Web Services now for the second month now. And yeah, if, if you mention Microsoft, Microsoft is, of course, the Azure cloud is the, the main competitor. So, you know. Not me, to forget me, about Google Cloud as well. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, just, yeah, just yeah, saying, right? So Google, Google Cloud. <laughs> Google none of this vendors, none of these vendors is sponsoring us, by the way, right? Yes, Which that's means right. It's it's totally fair that we mention multiple of them, right? Uh, well, just, well, you say that Amazon Web Services kind of sponsors me, as in they pay for my mortgage. So you know there is that. But, <laughs> but I am of course totally yeah, unbiased. But that, that doesn't that doesn't count. Uh, that doesn't count, yeah, right? Exactly. But, but I just had a training, and and Microsoft is really at least in the UK. The, the main competitor, the ones that the salespeople are trained to to have arguments in the back for, sort of prepared, the sort of fight of why shouldn't we use Azure instead, right? So, so there is that. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, let's probably get back to the topic. We don't want to waste people's time, do we? Yeah, um, indeed, we don't <laughs> want, right? Uh, we do, but we don't want to. Okay, fine. Well, uh, let's enough. get back to yeah. the topic. Uh, we, we do, yeah. Um, where were we? So we were breaking up this monolithic application to give each team their part of the cake. And what this also almost, <clears throat> some say this is the main motivation, but I would say this is kind of a side effect, is that now that the team can deploy their own, shall we say, sub-application, then things like scaling become easier. Their sub-application, or let's let's call them microservices now, their own microservices can scale independently, 
and what that means is if that microservices has microservice has a lot of traffic it can scale independently of other microservices from other teams that are part of the application yeah so if the traffic requires that you need 10 instances you can have 10 instances of your little microservice right yeah. it just does that but of course there are it's not quite as simple but you know let's let's keep it simple for now and let's dig into the details later so where are we so that is that that is basically the problem we're solving for independent scaling and independent deployment and independent slices of functionality that we want and loose coupling right uh, i mean which is what you said uh, basically by independent uh, deployment yeah. and so on so we we want yeah. to decouple it to a degree that uh, as you said right several teams uh, can maintain their own service let's say without affecting or uh, maybe the entire application or without Im impacting other services uh, that are part yes. of the application let's say right uh, which is quite uh, nice because uh, so talking about it right what I tended to say in the past uh, and I gave I think two talks in the past about this stuff but uh, more in the context of what is happening with your database <laughs> you know, so everyone by now knows that I'm the database guy right so you and uh, I mean services microservices are having a kind of polyglot character in, in multiple senses right and uh, one sense is that uh, the team which is developing it might basically decide by its, by by themselves or or which or which programming language is used to implement it right so it might be completely okay to have uh, one application which leverages multiple microservices behind the scenes to provide the functionality and this one application is kind of uh, then our uh, in a sense, uh, built by using multiple programming languages, right? There there might be one service which is implemented in C, C++, uh, another one which is implemented in Python, another one which is implemented in Node.js or whatever, right? It, the only thing that matters is that there, there is a kind of uh, contract between the services or the consumers of the services which is fulfilled, right? Which means that the API is well-defined and whatever. Uh, how it is implemented behind the scenes is kind of... Uh, by intention hidden. I, I would say from my experience, uh, most of the enterprise companies are anyway limiting it to a bunch of languages or platforms or frameworks and so on, right? Uh, to to avoid uh, that it's completely wild, wild west. But in theory, <laughs> um, you can basically uh, say, okay, I have a Java development team, right? And I need this service um, as part of my application. And uh, as long as uh, the non-functional requirements are fulfilled by Java, let's say performance and so on, right? Uh, you could implement this service uh, in Java. Um, the more interesting polyglot characteristic from my point of view is actually the uh, uh, polyglot uh, persistence, right? Uh, so as a database person, I find it interesting that uh, each service basically, and this is a pattern, uh, each service should have its own database, right? And now the question is a little bit, uh, what is the service doing? And uh, if the service is maybe a product catalog service, then you might use something like uh, JSON documents to store it and so on. And so you might pick a, a data store which supports JSON and uh, some search on top of JSON, right? So maybe a document database or, or something similar or polyglot database which has support for it. Um, then another service might uh, basically, let's say, 
ja, deal with more lightweight information or like sessions and so on, right? Uh, and in this case, you're typically going with a key value store, let's say, yeah, uh, because key value stores are better scalable, more easily scalable, right? Or in this sense. And uh, again, another service might have something like, um, let's say, uh, I need to construct something here, uh, maybe uh, a social network, right? Which is a typical example for, uh, let's say, <laughs> a craft database. But uh, a social network um, uh, service, let's say, I'm failing here a bit because actually it needs to be domain specific. So uh, maybe uh, it should be a service which resolves some dependencies between persons uh, in, a, in, a, in a kind of business relevant manner. Uh, uh, and uh, Better. So what 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 I mean is basically then you would use a craft database for something like this, right? Yeah. Or, uh, and uh, each service is getting its own database, and this database uh, fulfills the specific needs, let's say, right? And uh, the cool thing about this is, especially if you use NoSQL database systems, uh, like uh, there are different uh, NoSQL databases out there. Everyone knows by now which one is my favorite one, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so Redis. Uh, yeah, DynamoDB. Um, yeah, exactly. But uh, there are others as well, right? Like MongoDB, yes. Cassandra. Whatever, so Cosmos um, DB. Yeah. or Cosmos DB, or to be or to fulfill your Microsoft fanboy yeah. nature, <laughs> right? Uh, um, yeah. So, so meaning, meaning the idea would be you select the right database for the right job, right? By being able uh, to fulfill requirements like scalability, as you said, right? So scalability meaning uh, if you have key value store, for instance, it's it's out of the box, very scalable because the underlying data model is a bit more simple, simpler, right? You have key value pairs. Um, you can distribute the data more easily by using, uh, for instance, hash-based charting, uh, which means that the data store scales uh, uh, in association or aligned with your service, which is important, right? Because you don't want to have the database becoming your bottleneck. Uh, let's yes. Say, right? Um, yeah, uh, that's it from, from my side regarding polyglot persistence. I think what we will do is um, um, we will talk a bit about issues and so on later, right? And then I will come uh, to something like transactions in this sense. Uh, so how to do yes. transactions in this uh, in a microservices architecture, which also has an impact on uh, yeah uh, which database you might choose or not. Right? Okay, but uh, yeah, so. Um, so we yeah. understood that we broke it up into components, right? Um, so you might have a web application and one independent component might be a checkout service or uh, the other one might be a catalog service or whatever, right? I think the uh, the typical example for Microsoft, uh, uh, sorry, now I said Microsoft <laughs> as well, right? Man, right? <laughs> for microservices architecture, right? Is, uh, is uh, something like, uh, an order system or an e-commerce system, right? Where you have yeah. different uh, responsibilities like uh, the actual checkout, uh, you, you have the session management, uh, you have the product catalog or uh, stuff like stuff like this, right? So, okay. Um, so then how does this uh, actually work? Um, is there more behind the scenes? Or? Yeah. So, so yeah. So, so typically, how you break this up? Or, yeah, you're right. It, it is 
it typically e-commerce websites are are used as an example yeah that's that's exactly right and you have well you, you typically you tend to break it down by domain don't you you already mentioned uh, a checkout service so i i imagine for most e-commerce websites they have or, or you know e-commerce websites at that scale is that they have a separate microservices just for the checkout because that functionality is, is self-contained all you need to know for checkout i mean what what do you need to know for checkout service you have this if you imagine it you have this uh, basket instance right and this basket contains a list of products so surely your checkout microservice needs to talk to the product microservice that supplies a list of products, right? So the checkout service has that list of product IDs and has an associated customer. So there surely has to be a microservice that does the customer management. And that's all it is. And then it, it posts that at some point, maybe it hands it off to fulfillment. And then you have to have, so, so, so what is becoming apparent is that you need to have communication between the microservice. If you if you expand that thing further, that example that we so just described is there are two types, aren't there, of communication, which is synchronous and asynchronous. If the uh, if the checkout service needs to get information about the product, say, well the price, the price is a pretty important data point, I would think, then it needs to synchronously ask, um, hey product microservice what can you give me the data about this product what's the price what's the name you know do you have a little thumbnail image that sort of thing and then it has to has to wait to get that data back so there's a synchronous call there but after the customer has pressed the buy button right so that 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 the checkout is done we are bought then the checkout services job is done and you can imagine that there is a fulfillment microservice on some you know in some location that uh, sends the order somehow to to a fulfillment center and, and all of that stuff so there has to be an asynchronous application uh, an asynchronous communication you put that that data point that okay that 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 is now bought the buy button is pressed you put that information into an asynchronous message queue and i'm already giving away how it works so you put that on a queue to be processed later so yeah so that is that is typically the two types of communication that you have synchronous and asynchronous and this is how you make that whole thing work we'll we'll dig deeper into persistence you already mentioned this polyglot persistence problem because that 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 whole thing becomes interesting as if a microservice itself has no data in it has no state <clears throat> then things become very easy right if if you need 10 instances of that microservice no problem right you can scale it up because they individually hold no state there's, there's no problem there but mm, if yeah the state Microsoft, is in the database let's say right it, I, I, it, I mean the instance of the the instance <laughs> of the service doesn't have any state let's say right mm -hmm. uh but the the state on which it operates let's say should be in a in a database system right somewhere it, yes so i i partly agree so typically that is the case but there are other patterns of how you can do this and this is further down the script so i'm jumping 
slightly ahead because it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, right. actually, there, there it's, are... <laughs> a, it's, a, it's an interesting topic, right? Because I, I just had discussions about it or last week. Uh, um, so with, with one of my customers, let's say, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> if this makes sense or if this doesn't make sense and so on. But uh, maybe you can discuss this uh, uh, as part of the what are potential challenges with microservices, right? Okay. Fine. So let's park that. Let's let's make sure that we mention this. What if a is if a service if a micro let's let's put it this way. Microservices can be responsible for state or for partitions of a state. Right? Let's leave it at that. And the microservice may want to save that to a database or it may do other things, which we look at later. Um, yeah, so that's the oh, main thing. Okay, it's... okay. Uh, <laughs> and maybe... interesting... uh, okay, fine. Go ahead and Sorry, we, go ahead. We ju- no, go ahead and we jump to it after uh, you finished. Uh, because I, I would like to understand. Uh, I, I mean, okay, fine. Uh, because otherwise it's not really structured. Let's uh, I just let complete you and then I, I talk. Okay. <laughs> okay, fine. So so should okay. So so should I should I should I briefly mention it as a as a glimpse ahead or do you want to keep this okay so 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 obviously yeah okay fine so just as a little spoiler um what you say is right so typically state is stored in the database right but there are other approaches for instance uh, service fabric and other application servers are available where the state sort of becomes married with the instance of the microservice. So how does that work? Uh, the application server provides some sort of fabric where a microservice can just say, um, okay, persist me this, please, right? And the, uh, the application server just does it sort of internally. It saves it in a, you know, the, the usual high availability thing. So you have a copy and then you have a have a yeah. replica somewhere else. That's all. Thing. You could argue that's just built-in database. But it doesn't, it doesn't database. contradict with my statement, right? Exactly. You can yeah, say yeah. that uh, there is uh, something like a distributed database, which is co-located uh, uh, with the yes. service. So which is more or less the same thing as you would do with a memory data grid, right? So You, you the, could argue that. But with application it, servers like micro, uh, like uh, service fabric, it goes a step further by implementing this, what's called the actor pattern, where you say, um, not only is, is a server stateful and, and saves its state as part of a slice, but a microservice is specifically, or an instance is specifically responsible for a particular slice of the state. So you could say uh, the actor pattern, well, the typical example is that you have one instance of a particular microservice per user. So if your microservice is your your profile, your user profile, say, right, then you have, if, if I log in as a user, Thomas, there will be one instance of the profile service that looks after my user ID. Yeah. Yeah. So that that is, so the application server instantiates that, sort of hydrates it with the state. So, you know, all the data that belongs to my user ID is sort of provided to that instance automatically. And for the code, that is totally transparent. The code just says, okay, sounds like a data, it's a data grid at the end, right? So basically what you're doing is you're co-located. Yeah, that's basically the idea. 
I, I mean, at the end, right? Uh, it's let's say it doesn't matter too much. Uh, what I meant is right that uh, at some point, uh, even if you say your services state less, and this is the typical approach, right, for microservices to say that the instance of the service itself is stateless. So when it dies, you can just spin up a new instance uh, without having mm. uh, any any concern, right? Um, but uh, let's say the the service is indeed connected to something like a data store. Let's call it data store, right? Which is yeah. then which is then kind of uh, having having the state uh, in in a sense, right? And was I, what I was referring to that this is uh, something I, we can discuss was more about some some potential anti patterns in this regard. But uh, maybe we come later to this. What you are saying is right. I, I mean the uh, the application server is having the data store included the separation which you just described is something like a, a sharding mechanism right yes. so you balance your load uh, based on a sharding mechanism so if this is uh, based on on hash based sharding or based on user ids or whatever right uh, from my point of view or uh, something like uh, distributing it evenly it doesn't in general scale better right but uh, and uh, kind of distributing it based yeah. on on manual criteria tends to to cause some issues because you you get services that are more busy than other services like if you would decide uh, as your sharding criteria for this approach which you just mentioned right uh the user id then you could have power users and you can have uh inactive users let's say right so which means that one application application server would be much more busy than the other one i'm pretty sure that uh, the solution or how is it called uh microsoft uh, oh um, service fabric. fabric um oh, service okay. fabric is kind of service fabric. So okay. I'll, I'll talk later what comes after that okay fine but, uh, yeah. so let's talk about it uh, specifically later but I, yeah. I i guess they they allow you to decide how to share the data if they then if yeah, they co-locate it within the application are able to easily reshard and redistribute the data based on the access patterns right and based on our uh, on how optimal the data is accessed and uh, having some hotspot instances i think this is a different story um, maybe you have insights into this but uh, i guess one downside of co-locating this stuff with the application itself right instead of having a, a kind of uh, data store which has its own distribution mechanism and is maybe a little bit more flexible regarding resharding and stuff like this right could be mm -hmm. that binding uh, the data uh, to a specific service instance uh, that it actually has some scaling limitations because one service instance is now more busy than another service instance, right? Yeah. Which you would not have if you would kind of uh, uh, balance the load by using something like uh, round robin or so on. Yeah. I mean, what what you say sounds like total science fiction to me. So what, what, what I know is that, that every high availability system has, of course, some sort of sharding going on. And some sort of, well, most NoSQL databases call it a, a sort of a partition key or, you know, a sharding key of some sort that is typically user-defined. So I know in Cosmos DB and uh, in DynamoDB. Not true, right? So our well, most well, NoSQL okay. no, no systems, let's say, are allowing MongoDB, for instance, is allowing you uh, to have hash, use hash-based sharding. Indeed, uh, they used in the past uh, more something like uh, specific sharding. Most key value stores, right? Uh, um, like Redis, for instance, as well. Um, they are using, uh, let's say, hash-based sharding 
right, in order to distribute the data evenly. But you can indeed influence, uh, uh, even in okay. Redis, uh, the the sharding by saying, okay, I would like to to have data sitting in one partition uh, together, right? Uh, just in key value stores, the default is hash-based sharding. And I think even MongoDB uses uh, uh, this uh, also now, right? Uh, because it's uh, it's more hassle-free and as a, as a kind of basic assumption, uh, if the complexity of the system or, or let's say if the complexity of the underlying data model allows it, right? Because uh, uh, let's say an extreme would be a graph database system. A graph database yeah. system is actually not allowing you to uh, to scale it very uh, easily or uh, horizontally, let's say, right? Um, the tendency there is to scale it more vertically. And the reason for that is that the, the uh, uh, let's say, underlying data model is much more complex for a graph database system. Um, I, I'm not sure if you remember, we, um, I think we had uh, both at university <laughs> graph algorithms and uh, graph theory, right? And uh, I'm not sure what yeah. the exact uh, English translation is for this, <laughs> but if you look at graph theory, there is this notion of, uh, of uh, strong interconnectivity say right uh, it might mm. be my translation where you have uh, have basically a bunch of vertices that are by themselves highly interconnected right and maybe there are just a few edges uh, to 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 another bulk of vertices that are kind of highly interconnected so i would say that those are strong uh, connectivity components right yes uh, and and so now those uh, connect strong connectivity components would make up the shard in a graph database because graph data in graph databases Very everything is around uh, traversing efficiently yeah. let's say right which means that on uh, on the other hand side uh, you wouldn't use something like a hash-based charting approach uh, for a graph database system you would basically base the sharding on the interconnectivity and maybe for other use cases you would base it on some some uh, specific shard criteria or partition criteria like uh, whatever the region or the company or whatever but um let's say more scalable in a sense because uh, it it avoids uh, more scalable in theory let's say would would be for something like key value stores for instance even the dist to even distribute the data but it depends on the use case need right again graph databases you would not do this uh, yeah right? okay uh, so maybe graph databases are different that's interesting so there must be a layer that I'm not aware of because when you define your database or your tables or whatever they're called in the system. You, I'm, I'm thinking Cosmos DB and DynamoDB. Yeah. You have to define a partition key. You have to, yeah. and they and that doesn't have that, that that doesn't have to be the document ID. That can be anything you yeah. like. You know, some sort of key. And they say it should be vaguely evenly distributed so with, with sort of the Im implication that it's being yeah. used I, i'm not a cosmos db expert but i think what uh, mongodb does if i remember correctly they basically are have our special properties that are are like uh, hash hashes checksums right and they basically put partition then on this property which is basically containing okay. a, containing a hash and based on that or uh, they they would do the hash based charting whereby uh, other systems like uh, let's say redis or couchbase 
movies, right? They are they are typically are doing the following. They just uh, take the the key in the first step, right? Um, then so basically every item has a key in the in the first step. Right? Yeah. Uh, so the primary key you would call it, right? And then um, you you apply a hash function on this primary key, and this hash function in the first step gives you a slot number or a hash slot number. You usually have mm -hmm. a fixed number of hash slots or in Reddit 16k. Uh, and then what you do is you map those uh, the slot a slot range to a specific partition, right? So it's a it's a two step mapping. So hash slot and then hash slot to partition, and then uh, let's say you know where this data needs to live because the partitions are basically let's say the the shards uh, in Redis world or Redis instances, right? They are mapped to the specific slot range, and if you want to want to scale more horizontally out, you would basically break the the slot ranges more up, right? Uh, so yeah. for instance, you start with 16K, then if you reshard, you get twice 8K. If you reshard again, you get uh, four times 4K and so on. But I mean, this is not the topic here, but uh, let's say there, there are different approaches and uh, regarding this polyglot persistence, as mentioned before, right? There are specific different use cases and requirements. And uh, if you want to have horizontal scaling uh, together with your service, you would probably not decide for a graph database, right? You would decide for a graph database as the underlying data store for your service if you have something like the need to, to traverse uh, a graph efficiently, right, locally in a, in a sense, right? So yeah. something like the friend of the friend of the friend of the friend, whatever, right? Which is very expensive via joins and relational database systems, something graph databases do very well, or finding the optimal flow in a network, yeah. something like that, right? Oh, fascinating. I didn't know that. Come to think of it, yeah, that makes sense because the, the definition of a partition key, well, a DynamoDB has a partition key and a sort key. So, to, so what you what that allows you to, it's more of, a, more of a construct that allows you to query the data a little bit. So query might be the wrong word because obviously you can get a document sort of directly by the key. Right, yeah, so fetch the partition it, key doesn't exactly, matter for that. Yeah, you can just yeah. directly do a hash lookup with the key. But what you can also say is, give me all the documents that have this partition key. If your partition key is is city, right, then give me give mm -hmm. me all the documents for London, right. Yeah. So, so that's what that is. And the sort key is then so typically what you use the sort key for is is uh, then range searches. So within your partition key range. Exactly. Uh, so what yeah. they have is they have in the first, uh, you, what you can see, I mean, it's not a database uh, conversation here, but talking about databases, what they have in the first step is basically a hash index, right? Uh, in, in a sense, uh, which is uh, yeah. uh, maybe used to do hash-based sharding or whatever sharding, right? Redis, by the way, also supports to to have uh, more more influence to, to kind of shard it by a specific portion of the key only, right? So they call it hash text. But anyway, so there, there's a yeah. hash, uh, let's say a hash map in the first step maybe, and uh, in the second step, there is a kind of tree structure, uh, log structure, uh, uh, LSM tree, right? Uh, mm. um, or a B plus tree or something like this, right? And uh, uh, the second one is basically just for the ordering, right? So uh, that you can yeah. do efficient range queries by using logarithmic complexity instead of scanning the entire partition uh, for uh, when doing range queries, right? Oh, fascinating stuff. Yeah, that takes me back to uni. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, I'm just sticking into it because I'm, I'm just learning DynamoDB. And we had, had a little problem where we had to do particular query and we found, oh, well, the data isn't organized to do that particular query. 
But yeah. we, we solved it with another index. But yeah, let's typical database problem, Microsoft right? Services. A typical <laughs> database problem. Hey, yeah. there's an index missing from my query in order to support it effectively or efficiently. Right? Yeah, exactly. It was some sort of aggregation problem. We always yeah. wanted for particular buckets. We wanted the latest of each bucket, that sort of thing. You know, where with, with a normal SQL database, we, you would just go, yeah, let's query that. But with NoSQL, not so simple. Depends, but, right? Which capabilities the NoSQL well, database yeah. system has. W worst but, case, uh, it's not so simple. Uh, uh. You know, especially aggregations. But maybe let's get the, the curve back to services. Yeah. So, so <laughs> databases indeed, totally so database indeed play a big role, right? Uh, regarding the polyglot <laughs> persistence story. Uh, and I, I personally think that uh, microservice and polyglot persistence are telling a great story for NoSQL database systems, right? Agreed. Because uh, NoSQL database systems are, are kind of multi-purpose systems. I mean, they are getting more and more functionality. Let's say Redis has also tons of modules now that are supporting specific use cases and uh, it supports this kind of idea of polyglot persistence very well because you can now decide okay hey uh, for service a i might combine something like redis core with redis search right um, because this is the requirement yeah. to to have something more searchable or indexable and queryable and for service two i'm just using redis core and for service three i'm using redis graph right so basically uh, as we discussed already in, i think in the first episode uh, it's becoming more multi-model are uh, in order to also support those microservices, uh, mi microservices uh, story, let's say polyglot persistence story better, right? Uh, so yeah, exactly. Did you know? And I, I think our regular listener, we have regular listeners. Um, I'm not sure if we will have after this, but anyway, up until now, we had regular listener Michael Luke, <laughs> and he, yeah, he gave us that that quote: uh, Melvin Conway, any organization that designs a system will produce a design whose structure is a copy of the organization's communication structure, right? So the application reflects the company in a way. And I find that very interesting. And he said that in 68. So way very true. before Microsoft's architecture. Very, very true. And it's actually, you can see this, uh, since microservices architectures, I'm not sure what came first, to be honest. If this is a, is a kind of, uh, it's a bit chicken and egg. But what you could see yeah. is, since microservices architectures are more kind of common, right, um, that the organization of bigger enterprise companies are leaning towards DevOps approaches, right? So, and if I say DevOps approaches, I mean yes. uh, the actual interpretation of DevOps uh, uh, and not you this weird concept where one guy is doing everything. What I mean is basically um, <laughs> that uh, uh, the company is no longer, let's say, um, just described by there's one department which is doing database administration. There's another department which is doing systems administration. There's another one which does, does uh, software engineering and so on. What ha what's happening is uh, you basically have uh, a bunch of people grouping together to one team, right? So a software engineer or a bunch of software engineers, architects, or uh, let's say a systems engineer and so on, right? So a group which spans the, the, the normal organizational structure of the company, which is now basically your DevOps team, let's say, right? Uh, so because they, they do uh, the, the joint forces to operate and develop uh, something, right? And this something uh, is uh, preferably a service, right? Because they yes. can operate completely independently from, from, from others. And so 
so this statement is very very true right empirically uh, seen in the in the, within several customers by by me right so the the fact that they kind of uh, think more about decoupled services also implies that persons are kind of structuring their teams in a different way and from my point of view in a more efficient way yeah and this is interestingly this is also how amazon scaled there was this thing years ago where they would say okay we can't have we can't have just people helping people at i mean you know people helping people's always a good thing but we need to think about how people can help other people in a more scalable way so there need to be interfaces to find between departments and it has all it, it has got to be so there has to be asynchronous applications uh, asynchronous communication like a ticketing system right if you have a problem you create a ticket and then the other department gets around to solving it you know it's interesting and as you say the devops thing amazon has also this you build it you run it uh, approach or notion or motto, if you like, which is exactly that, right? You've, 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 you spec out your little slice of functionality and the team guides it from development into production. And exactly. it creates a sort of very tight feedback loop because the, the people who coded that thing might actually have contact with end customers through this. True. So yeah. So all, all problems solved, all good. Uh, not really, right? So I actually, uh, sometimes I'm getting a bit emotional about this stuff. <laughs> it's a, oh, right, emotional but, as in sad or <laughs> emotional by by uh, um, yeah being a bit Stabby. confused and opinionated about it. So the the listener might forgive me about it uh, if I if I make now some statements. And if you disagree, right, then then just uh, just let us know. Just, right? I, just, I will just maybe correct myself in the next uh, episode, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand side, I mean, this podcast is called Crumpy Old Coders, right? Uh, which means uh, it's completely okay yeah, that we are that. a little bit crumpy at least, right? Uh, <laughs> So I, I mean, fine. Um, let's talk a bit about um, challenges, or what I means challenges. In the first step, as you said, uh, there's some communication happening, and uh, uh, you would not like to have this in a in a kind of uh, let's say highly available uh, way, and so on. So what you would do is you would, uh, most of the cases, uh, go with asynchronous. Uh, um, asynchronous communication between the services, right? And for this, uh, you need to have additional infrastructure services like uh, uh, a message queue, right? So basically, when whenever a service dies, uh, then um, another service can come up and uh, can consume the message instead of uh, basically just having a, a request timing out. But this is also adding complexity, right? So it adds some needs for monitoring services a bit yeah. more carefully and uh, some stuff like this, right? Uh, so so uh, complexity is is also giving you some responsibility, <laughs> let's say. Um, yeah, there are different protocols, which is not really a big deal, right? Um, so the the idea is just that you kind of uh, make sure that everyone is aware of uh, the protocol of anyone else. So in theory, um, you could use something like um, RESTful services or gRPC, so an RPC protocol, or you could use uh, SOAP even, right? Um, it doesn't matter oh, as yeah, long as everyone agrees don't. that uh, this protocol is used, right? Uh, yeah. uh, let's not get into a philosoph philosophical discussion which protocol is best or worse? Uh, <laughs> I'd say I would say typically is currently something like uh, uh, 
restful service, right? Yeah. Um, then the other thing is we, we talked already about, hey, use the right data store for the right job. And uh, um, uh, an argument, I mean, I'm working since ages uh, for database companies, let's say, and I started my, my database career by working for a relational database system company. And then I joined a graph database company. And the argument which I was hearing quite often ages ago, right, was, oh, why doesn't it support as a transactions and so on, right? And uh, let's say when I was younger and worked uh, uh, as an architect for this uh, graph database uh, company, also doing uh, consultancy and presets and everything a bit because it was a very small company uh, at this point of time. And uh, I, I actually didn't have a very good argument yet, uh, but Microservices is giving me this argument uh, post-mortem in a sense, right? Because, uh, because let's say if you decide that uh, you go get rid of this monolithic relational database system, which was used by several components of your monolithic application, right? Then you're breaking basically your application into pieces as we just learned and each piece uh, has its own data store or some kind of uh, way to store data, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, unless the service is entirely stateless, which is uh, not completely common, let's say, right? Um, so, so meaning, meaning, um, uh, what you lost by losing this this kind of monolithic uh, relation database system is, in a sense, the transactional context, right? Because what relation database systems were really good in, uh, or at, uh, was basically providing you asset transaction guarantees, and uh, so this this kind of uh, block in the middle, which is providing you that, is is kind of missing now, right? So, uh, which means that you need to solve the uh, or usually you would need to solve the transaction management uh, a little bit higher right so on the service tier and no longer yeah. on the data store tier this doesn't mean that you can't use a database which is very transactional right i, I mean it's still okay to have a, a, a microservice which uses a relational database system for instance um, if the need is uh, is to have very 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 strict transactional guarantees uh, or whatever right uh, or support for a money data type or whatever you might think of based on your requirements. Again, uh, use the right database system for uh, for the job, right? Um, but uh, let's say across the services and your application is now basically built of many services, uh, the transactional context is kind of in the first step, if you break it up, missing, right? So you need to add it back. <laughs> and uh, this is actually challenging, uh, more challenging than you would think that it is because now you start to to apply some additional patterns in order to gain it back right so the first one would be saga pattern right saga pattern basically just means that uh, you have local transactions and you group them together to one bigger transaction right so maybe okay. uh, one service is doing a transaction and informs uh, then uh, let's say the higher authority whoever is managing this transaction that this is done right and then the other service is uh, running a transaction and then as soon as this is done, another one is done. And uh, finally, the transaction is uh, seen as completed when every local transaction within the service was basically successful, right? So the problem with the Saga pattern itself is that uh, Saga does not yet uh, cover the rollback, right? So meaning you, you have something like chained uh. transaction execution or uh, chained execution of uh, transaction but if something fades in the middle um you're a little bit lost right the pattern doesn't doesn't give yet an answer to this uh, which means yeah, that but, uh, there but, there is another approach which is about uh event sourcing right 
but, but which means before uh, you move to event sourcing but if, if you can't roll it back what what's the point then why why would you even yeah it's not an atomic uh, transaction in this case right but you at least know that uh, there is a kind of context for your transaction right you okay. know which which service is involved into which part and so on right which is maybe maybe sometimes good enough uh, often not okay. right which is the reason why we are adding event sourcing in the next step right uh, which means event sourcing are involves an event store so which gives us now let's say um might give us an additional kind of infrastructure service but there it comes a little bit in controversial and or there i'm a bit opinionated uh, and i discussed it last <laughs> week with one of my customers right um so what i saw there in an architecture and they might be right or wrong right uh, but um, what they did is basically they had a had a kind of event store which was shared by uh, many services, let's say, right? So it was a kind of central event store. Uh, let's say uh, could be Redis Streams, it could be Kafka, right? Uh, whatever. So there, there is a shared event store, and everyone was basically just uh, writing events into it, right? And what it brings you is uh, you have a very, very good overview about uh, what's currently happening in the context of your transactions, because each of the events written to the event store basically is like, uh, yeah, adding only the change to to the store. Uh, I have to explain this, right? So in an event store, you're not uh, kind of uh, materializing the the entire data you are just storing the delta for each step right uh, okay. which, which means that uh, uh, if i would update uh, for instance in a table uh, a specific column value and i would not basically materialize the entire in the first step not materialize the entire row i would say okay hey um i'm i'm basically just saying hey the column value uh, name change to that value, right? And now um, I have a lot of uh, of little events uh, that are representing my state uh, in this event store, right? Uh, and uh, my my point of view, and I'm a bit opinionated, was okay, fine. I don't like the idea of having the centralized event store because then, what is the difference of having uh, my monolithic database in the middle or yeah. uh, used by different services? I personally think okay, uh, it should be the case that each service has its own event store, right? And they communicate maybe asynchronously or typically asynchronously with each other. And if they want to kind of re reconstruct a state, let's say, right? They they can leverage the the information of each individual service in order to to kind of get it um indeed it's a bit harder then because um uh, but for the saga pattern it should be okay right because you chain the transactions actually which means the local order is more relevant than the global order the global order is kind of maintained by using this saga approach from my point of view but again i i am i'm happy to get corrected by listeners uh, regarding this uh, anyway so one one approach which you see quite often which kind of breaks with the decoupling from my point of view is that people uh, put just an event store in the middle right <laughs> so, okay uh, can, can I ask a quick question? Yeah, I'm I'm confused now. So in an event store, so I know what Kafka and and this Redis streams and and yeah. AWS Kinesis um, uh, does, and it's for distributing events. Yeah, but, but you now talk about state. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you can use it for for this as well, right? So what you what they can do is, uh, so basically, if you have a stream, uh, for instance, uh, a stream doesn't uh, have state, right? 
Yeah, yeah, it is as soon as long as you persist the, the stream or as long as you maintain the stream, uh, let's say for a period of time. So what you're doing is uh, usually you're writing uh, to it, to Kafka, a topic, let's say, right? And yeah. um, you, you're writing this to this topic and you keep writing to it, let's say. And the cool thing about it is that uh, uh, each each entry in, in your topic or stream or whatever has a kind of ever-growing ID, which makes it really easy to use it as a yes. kind of transaction lock, right? Right? because this is the, your, uh, let's say, logical timestamp or however you would call it, right? Which yeah. basically means this order is allowing you to, to roll something back. So if you have the entire state within it, you could roll back to a specific point. So now the, okay. this, the thing is a bit, uh, again, right? I'm not a big fan of those centralized ones. Maybe there is a good reason to use them for performance reasons or to have a kind of uh, more... Uh, more global view it's maybe an implementation detail but i i personally think regarding the decoupling every uh every service should have its own event store but it's just my personal opinion so now um and maybe i'm wrong so um uh but the problem is now <laughs> with the event storing <laughs> approach it's really great for rolling back stuff because if you think about it it's more or less like a like a, a, a transaction lock right uh, yes but uh but the problem with it is now it's really great for writing to it, right? But it's really bad for reading from it, yes. right? Because uh, because in order to get your state back, you would need to puzzle it together from all those hundred thousand events that were stored oh, in your event store, which brings us to the next. Uh, and there it gets a little bit complex. And um, I, I know those are typical patterns, right? But uh, you literally have the feeling, because you ask about issues, that uh, you're basically putting a patch on something which you kind of uh, caused yeah. by yourself in the first step. Yeah. Right? I, I um, might be totally naive, but this feels like almost the wrong solution. Nah, let, let me continue, right? So basically okay, now you have your events, which basically means you have distributed uh, uh, a kind of uh, transaction lock per service, or oh, if you go with a, with a centralized one, you have one which is uh, kind of uh, shared across the services, which I don't like. But uh, anyway, so now the 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 next solution to, to patch this, right, to put your patch on it is, okay, um, I actually need to read model. Right. So, so because, uh, because I am, I, it's really horrible to read from an event store. So, what I need to do is I need to have an additional database in addition to the event store, the one which you had previously, maybe anyway, right? For, for your efficient access, uh, which maintains a, a materialized view of the data, let's say, right? Um, so, uh, so the, the data is written it. to the event store, then maybe asynchronously also written, uh, to the, to the, uh, uh materialized view depending on which kind of uh, consistency yeah, guarantees okay. you're needing but uh, performance wise maybe asynchronous write operations make more sense right and now what you have is you, you have something which is then called uh, let's say command query responsibility segregation uh, cqrs where you basically say okay everything which is a write goes in the first step uh, to my event store right because this is kind of my okay. uh, this is giving me some transactional context uh, at least locally and then i can change this via saga and um, 
in the in the next step i i have basically a materialized read view or let's say or read model it's how it's called in this case right um within my my database let it be a graph database let it be a document database let it be a key value store or let it be a data structure store like redis or actually polyglot database system like redis um which uh which then basically allows you to efficiently read the data again right so meaning uh, uh there are but again, it's it's like I'm not having a better solution for it, right? So okay. I, I guess if you if you want to to have more transactional guarantees, right, um, across uh, or even the history of execution across services, you can need to come up with something. And uh, two-phase commit, for instance, is also not nice because it's uh, you also need to maintain a temporary state, and okay. uh, it's also quite complex and maybe hard to manage across services and so on, right? Which means uh, that something like this event sourcing, Saga pattern plus event sourcing plus uh, command query responsibility segregation, so CQRS, is actually seems to be a, a proper solution but as you can see uh, something which might have started quite easy or simple becomes it's now complex. very complex yeah. and uh, there is more and more infrastructure there are more and more infrastructure services let's say added in order to solve yeah. this problem so my advice would be are uh, don't and this is the typical don't. advice we had this already <laughs> don't implement a microservices architecture just because you think that you need it for no That's reason right, right? Yeah. so That's think right. carefully what your requirements are because uh, at the end most price uh, microservices uh, microservice architecture will add a ton of complexity right uh, to do, your yeah. to your application can, right can i just check before you move on that i've understood this correctly so this event sourcing so when a mutation comes in it's written to the event store, whatever it is, Kafka. Yeah. And, and streams, well, Redis it, streams. It, also, In my case, it's Redis streams. Yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Go ahead. Whatever it is, Kafka <laughs> streams, Kinesis streams, if you want to drop names. Redis um, streams. So it's, it's yeah. written to that stream, but yeah. also the materialized view, which might be uh, yeah. a document database or whatever is updated. Or is the stream updating? Well, it doesn't matter. Okay. And the so what's the advantage? The advantage is that that stream can be replicated to other instances that hold I mean, the stream version. is by itself what, highly available. It's highly available and so on, but the replication is not the main advantage. The main advantage is basically that the stream itself contains an order or ordered version of every changing event, let's say, of every change event. And uh, uh, in a sense, this gives you like a like a kind of uh, fancy, highly available or even scalable uh, transaction log file, right? And in the context of this saga pattern, do you remember, right? We, we didn't have a way to roll it back, uh, let's say, right? Okay. Uh, because we, we didn't have a transactional context uh, anymore. Uh, but if you have a, a, have a sequence of ordered events so basically yes. a transaction lock uh, you now can basically roll the transaction you back it's the same this. way how how rollbacks are working in relational database systems by the way uh, what the relational database systems is doing it's it's uh, maintaining a transaction lock and if our uh, before the transaction is committed it's not actually guaranteed to be written to disk uh, let's say right um, so there's more about it uh, page buffers right behind threads whatever but uh, let's say the transaction lock uh, gives you the possibility possibility to revert to the previous state. 
right? Yeah, okay. Because you yeah, lock all the changes, and this is exactly okay. what the uh, what the uh, event store is providing you in this uh, case, okay. right? If it would be possible to read efficiently from it, uh, then um, you would need to have a read model, but uh, the same way as in a uh, same problems, but at another scale, let's say, right? Okay. Same way as in a relational database system, sometimes, right? Um, to have efficient access, you need to have a more materialized view of the data, right? Um, for instance, in uh, just an example, right? Because it jumps to my head in, in multi-dimensional analysis, right? Uh, what you do is you pre-calculate some data and put it into uh, or materialize it within your database, let's say, uh, in, in order to not calculate the data all the time uh, uh, mm. from scratch, right? So it's a, it's a typical approach also in relational database systems in order to 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 save you read effort, let's say, right? Okay. And or calculation effort. Uh, and uh, in this case here, we're doing the same, right? We, we say, okay, fine, we need to have uh, an order of events uh, uh, in order to be able to have transactions that can be rolled back, right? Um, at least per service. Uh, but uh, now this raises the problem that the event store can't be the, the only database because reading from it is horribly slow, right? So which means that uh, we, we materialize yeah, the data yeah. again in the, the other data store and scale this together with the read requests, uh, let's say, right? Makes sense. Um, and oh, the event store needs also to be scalable. Um, so you need to have something which also is uh, supporting charting and stuff like this, uh, right? Again, yeah. Redis streams, Kafka, whatever, um, needs also to be scalable and highly available. Um, in order to yeah. to to basically yeah uh, sustain the the right load uh, and that is uh, interesting yeah. yeah that's interesting to me because I, I wasn't familiar with that particular usage pattern of a stream because all the instances where i had to do with streams it had to do with sort of moving events events from a to b as in sort of the classic approach of streaming i know that dynamodb can replicate uh, a data using a stream sort of cross cross-region yeah. replication and global replication works that way and for for mclaren the core telemetry was sort of ingested into a kafka and then microservices yeah. would pick up from the kafka and sort of transform these events so uh, that's exactly. how I you can use it for this as well this is another plus yeah no right? I, I know it's just a new yeah. usage pattern that i didn't know before yeah. Thank you very much. I, I mean, maybe I, maybe I are so basically the the fact that you have an event store opens some other stuff for you as well, right? So basically, you can have more event based applications and communication with the yeah. with the other services, right? You can have uh, prohosts uh, to deal with them and whatever, right? So, but uh, the the idea in the context of okay, hey, I I want to have distributed transactions within my microservices architecture because I'm now basically distributing my my application, so it's a distributed uh, system now which basically mm -hmm. also comes with some uh because we are talking about problems right which also comes with all the challenges you have with distributed systems uh not that this is just a bad thing just you need to be aware of or uh, that uh you can't have something like our uh, uh, consistency availability and partition tolerance uh, all the same time right so you need to to sacrify uh, some stuff and what we are sacrificing here normally is something like uh, consistency right so state consistency not consistency like in transactions there some correlation there but uh let's say yeah you have a distributed system with all the implications of having a distributed system and uh, in order to basically gain your uh transactional context back you would need to deal with this somehow and then there are several pattern 
wants to deal with it. There are some advantages of using event stores uh, or, uh, yeah, let's say something like Kafka, right, uh, or Streams or whatever. Um, uh, as well, right, regarding um, exchanging uh, information. But let's say the communication typically happens via an event queue, right? So the, mm. the asynchronous communication and the stream is something which, or the 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 message queue, uh, it's not a queue, it's the queue is the the, the first one. Yeah. The, the topic, uh, let's say it's more like a stream, right? So there's a difference between a, a queue and a, uh, and a, and a stream. Um, it is basically more used for event sourcing in this uh, in this sense. Uh, and in a in in a way, because you we are surprised, right? What a stream does or ever did uh, is it is buffering data, right? And yes, uh, that's right. In in a sense, this is happening here, right? It just buffers the data for the purpose to deal with transactional behavior on the on the service tier right um yeah, yeah. It, it makes sense but it sort of blew my mind a little bit so good okay cool i'm, I'm, I'm um, glad i showed up i already learned stuff Cool, cool stuff. I, I mean, there are other challenges. Uh, so, or uh, yeah, but maybe to take get the curve right. Uh, what I meant by that is, uh, it's actually quite interesting to see that something like an asset compliant database system for every service doesn't make any sense anymore. Only for the services that by themselves need, or let's say. Uh, internally yeah. very hardly transactional requirements uh, but uh, for the other services you you basically can now highlight some other requirements a bit more like scalability high availability and stuff like this right um and then you need to deal with the transactional stuff anyway kind of on yeah. the service here um the uh, discovery is a topic usually how do i find services uh, how do find services each other right is there a service registry and stuff like this right um yeah uh performance again um there there are some implications uh having a distributed system usually means that there's a network com communication right which means that uh, uh if you have large payloads uh, this might some um, add some latency and so on uh, so uh, you should consider yeah. this maybe as well um but um in in general let's say microservices architectures are indeed much more scalable horizontally scalable than monolithic applications uh, right uh, monolithic applications you can vertically scale them uh, which is uh, yeah uh, uh, maybe yeah. good enough to a specific point but at some point uh, you might need uh, to scale horizontally and then uh, you would need to go with something like a distributed system yeah i mean that that is true but there is there is still this uh cr critic you know this this criticism of Microsoft's architecture being slow, and that is just down to implementation. Because if you define your microservice in a way that it needs to do uh, 20 HTTP calls to other microservices in order to do its job, then maybe you have defined the boundaries between the microservices wrong, but this is sort of an easy trap to fall into. Yeah. And that's why this criticism exists that microservice architectures can be slow. And they can if you don't design them carefully. Yeah, true. Uh, I mean, one way to get rid of the slowness in communication is to make it asynchronous, right? But it's a—it's uh, actually, it, it, it's not entirely solving the problem. It solves the problem to a specific degree, right? At the end, indeed, yeah. also if it is asynchronous, uh, um, yeah, let's say the 
the one who is putting the message into the queue, let's say, has the good feeling that his message is kind of uh, on its way, right? But yeah. uh, uh, it, it indeed takes also <laughs> a while until the receiver <laughs> is able to consume the message because there is That's network the latency. Uh, but uh, let's say it, it at least helps to scale the application. There is this... Uh, effect so asynchronous communication we talked about it last time right there there is this effect with synchronous uh, communication that uh, you multiply the network latency right uh, let's say yes. uh, which means that you say okay the application blocks for for kind of response or blocks until it gets mm -hmm. a response before it can send the next uh, uh, data over uh, and then again blocks until it can send the net until it gets a response and so on which means you you have basically are n times twice the network round trip right in in a sense from the point of view of the application if your application is just basically saying hey i'm putting this into a queue and then i go ahead and i'm putting the other stuff into a queue go ahead go ahead go ahead it's basically not blocking at this point of time and then it indeed needs to be able to asynchronously uh, handle the the results but uh, the 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 let's say observed uh, multiplied network latency is less uh, let's say right yeah but but that's not that's not a silver bullet that can't be used to solve you know if a user logs in and presses the login button you can't say your login request is being processed we'll get back to you nah, later. no you, you, can't, you know what right? i mean so uh, it, it doesn't solve all the problems but but yeah um, this is something you need to synchronize yeah but uh okay fine uh there's this uh, uh thing turtles all the way down right so i, I think it's a pratchett yeah. thing but uh yeah turtles, turtles all the way all down, down are means yep. indeed uh, you need to have it asynchronously across the entire stack. We talked about reactive programming the last time. Uh, so to mm. our dear listeners, if you didn't listen to this episode, maybe uh, it gives you some indications. So now at some point, right, uh, the uh, the stack of turtles needs to end maybe, right? And then uh, you, you basically uh, have, have something which is synchronous, like uh, the user is clicking the login button and you accept, uh, assume or expect that uh, the, the user is getting a, a synchronous uh, reply but all the processing which needs to be happen and to make this login or happen let's say right can be asynchronously and that, yes. that means much faster right if you would basically do the the synchronous operation execution across all the the different tiers or services that might be involved right uh, for just pressing this login button right it might be in in total much slower than are uh, doing it asynchronously as asynchronous as possible let's say right and then at the end sure there is one step which is kind of synchronous but all the other processing within is asynchronously happening which means you have a performance benefit right fair enough so so what about debugging then how can you debug a complicated distributed system like this yeah i i have to admit i'm i'm not having a lot of experience with this but i i think yeah, uh, normally <laughs> uh, what what you typically see in microservices in the microservice world and this might be also the reason why by monitoring solutions like grafana prometheus and so on are, are getting a lot of traction nowadays right um is that you basically need to to do a, a very detailed monitoring of your services and telemetry and whatever right so so meaning yeah. meaning in order to know what's going on there you need to monitor the infrastructure services let it be uh, uh, some some streams or uh, yeah uh, 
again like Kafka blah blah right or let yeah. it be let it be let it be the message queues and so on by by the way um i have to explain maybe here what we do right now all the time is we kind of distinguish between streams and queues and this might be just because i am i am used to work with redis <laughs> and there we uh, we we do this but uh, there there is a it's also an, a difference obviously so typically streams right uh, are can can cover all those use cases in a sense right so what you can do is you you could implement a kind of of uh, queuing similar to a queue behavior with it, right? By doing something like uh, uh, message processing, let's say, right? So uh, balancing mm -hmm. workloads uh, and so on. Or you could also use them more for, for message delivery, right? By, by having multiple consumers consuming the stuff and so on, right? Um, uh, it's both possible, but uh, more specifically, uh, a queue is something like uh, first in, first out, right? Uh, very simple. Yeah. So in Redis terms, uh, just my, uh, you could you could, would usually use a list or something like this, right? Uh, to to implement uh, as a data structure to implement a queue. But uh, if you want something where the order is playing uh, a role and you can stream from a specific point of time within it, right? So it's not gone as soon as someone consumes it, right? Um, you would typically go with a with a stream, right? Uh, so I I believe that uh, for instance Kafka is uh, is is sold in a way that they are saying, okay, we can do whatever you want with uh, events or messages, okay. right? So we, we can do okay. event uh, uh, message delivery, we can do message processing or whatever, or message procury and so on, right? So whatever you want, uh, they can do. And streams, in, a, in a, so Redis streams in a sense could do this as well, but they are uh, from a data structure point of view, indeed, also uh, kind of more efficient ways like using lists. So uh, you, in the sense. Okay, so you can do both because there's, there's one important distinction and that is how messages slash events are being consumed isn't there so it doesn't consume exactly that reads that sort of takes it off the queue exactly which means sort of in the real world it is hidden yeah and and then processes it yeah and and there is a timeout isn't there because the yeah the, 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 they can the, do both the so Kafka has consumer crash. groups uh Redis streams are having consumer groups so it basically can yeah. uh commit or confirm that you consumed a specific message um, in in such systems as well which means or uh, then in this case you could say could you argue it behaves more like uh yeah something which you use for workload balancing like uh, message processing right so someone yeah uh, you scale workloads at the end right so someone is putting something in and some consumers are consuming it and after they consumed it they confirmed that they consumed it or uh, by saying oh yeah i processed it right whereby yeah, exactly. um, the message delivery um what i just uh, mentioned before is like okay someone publishes maybe multiple persons or whatever uh, or systems are publishing messages right and then multiple consumers are just consuming the message uh, in order to notify someone like uh, publish subscribe would be a good example right uh, uh, as a as a better pattern for message delivery right so it's typically about message delivery message processing right um, and uh, you could use something like streams or kafka or uh, other yeah. solutions for for both purposes typically right you could yeah but you know obviously there's a cost difference because a simple message queue yeah, tends indeed, to indeed. be simpler yeah. and cheaper 
right? You just you just do a poll. You just say, give me the latest message, and then exactly it's hidden. Uh, that's a it's that's a reason why I said in Redis it. world I would go with a list yeah. for just simple queuing. There are advantages and disadvantages, right? We are not going into the detail, but regarding yeah. the data structure itself for queuing, are are basically lists are much more effective. Let's say right, uh, mm. but uh, for uh, they are not let's say that good for something like uh, having having to maintain an ordered uh, sequence of events where you would like to be able to consume from a specific point in time or where you would like to uh, do some stuff like uh, consumer groups that, that, that would be needed to implement it extra. So basically streams are much more sophisticated and can be used for multiple purposes in Redis. But simple queuing, you can also do with a list, uh, uh, with, a, with a cheaper profile, let's say, right? Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah I... depends on your use case and requirements and so on. But we distinguish here in this... Uh, in this podcast as well, uh, let's say between uh, between queues for the actual asynchronous, uh, uh, let's say communication between the service, right? Yes. Um, which is uh, also falling into the category of let's say message processing, in, in a sense, right? So because uh, the the service basically needs to pick it up and then consume the message, let's say, right? So it's not no longer in the queue then afterwards, and uh, uh, and let's say something like. Uh, uh, a stream data structure, whichever product you're using, right, for, for doing the event sourcing, right, where you basically would like to buffer the events in a, in a yeah. specific order uh, for a specific period of time or uh, maybe for a long time, depends, right, uh, uh, in order to be able to, to basically, uh, yeah, uh, stream or consume from a specific point in time, right? Yeah. yeah. And you can even have an event distribution without persistence. You can just say that event yeah. is being published, and if you missed it, you missed it. Yeah, yeah this is fire, luck. fire and forget exactly. Totally this would be that. message yeah. delivery, so publish, subscribe, the publish, subscribe pattern. It's typically used for something like, uh, yeah, you can assume something like notifications in mobile applications, yeah. uh, right? So fun, uh, if you fun if, fact, if your phone is on is on uh, online, right, it gets the message. If not, then not, right? So if, you if could not, do something you missed like it, yeah. Exactly. Um, fun fact, did you know the simple queue solvers, SQS, was the first service that AWS offered in 2006? Ooh, okay. Yes. I, 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 call, I, I basically said Redis too often, right? Which means that you, <laughs> <laughs> you had the feeling to... to <laughs> yeah. Many people so, think it's S3, the simple storage service, but <laughs> S3 was the second one. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> interesting, you. interesting. Okay. So debugging, so going back to the debugging point, I suppose you need some sort of, uh, yeah, some, some sort of aggregation tool, some, you know, some monitoring application where you probably what I would imagine if I was to code this is that a request would get assigned some sort of unique ID at some point. And then if that request sort of propagates through the system, you know, with internal communications, yeah. that ID is always attached. So you can collate you know, in in your monitoring tool, you have the chance to follow that request through the system. By I think I, I would refer to this as an opaque value or something like this, right? Which is attached to your sure. uh, request or whatever, uh, which is kind of uh, passed over uh, 
to all the other services and then you can monitor where yes. your, your wider, let's say, request spanning multiple services, let's say, uh, ends up. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Also application performance monitoring, right? Um, in in a yes. sense, uh, uh, is uh, something necessary. Again, I think Grafana is uh, something which is, I think you will talk a little bit about Kubernetes, right? So, I, Yeah, just a little bit. I. You know, which is also one of the i mean if you think about it right we talked about a lot of stuff right now but there are some there are some problems uh, uh, which we left out or uh, because we we didn't talk about the platforms yet and uh, now you might also understand why kubernetes uh, devops microservices and so on might be might be said in one sentence right because if you think about it okay fine having having those uh, services developed in a specific way so they are loosely coupled having the communication sorted out having distributed transactions sorted out yes. having the polyglot persistence store sorted out all of this stuff right is is useful and necessary right but unless you can't host the service in a reliable way somewhere <laughs> and scale the service easily on demand let's imagine you have thousand services right so you you need to have a platform which basically are uh, kind of provides you those services uh, in a in an easy way allows you to manage the services in an easy way and uh, something like kubernetes is now uh, exactly such a platform right so where you basically uh, yeah have properties like when the service dies then kubernetes will, will kind of bring up the service uh, instance yeah. again for you automatically right you can with a, with one command you can scale services uh, assuming that you have enough hardware behind the scenes for your minion nodes uh, or however they are called right now <laughs> uh, compute nodes or whatever <laughs> right uh, how they so, renamed them oh uh, i forgot is it yeah. minions is it it was, I think they renamed it. Uh, yeah, but uh, I, I still notes. tend to call them minions, right? Uh, I think because I like the now. term. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> it's cool. Because I, <laughs> I like the term. But yeah, but uh, all all this stuff makes totally sense right now because you 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 have Kubernetes being being basically your operating system for microservices. Uh, oh, I like it, that. Right. Operating system for microservices. Yeah, exactly. It's like sort of a, a standalone little cloud, isn't it? So it, yeah, it platform as a service cloud yeah. in, at the end. That's it. Yeah, yeah it, it, it provides many services that cloud providers have uh, built in or provide also like load balancing, as, as you said. So it provides load balancing, doesn't it, where you have a single yeah. endpoint and then you can say, okay, that, that endpoint is being load balanced to a number of microservices for whatever. And mm -hmm. if one of them dies, it's automatically respawned, as you said. Then you can do things like, you know, make it dependent on the traffic, yeah. you know, and the Affinity, number of requests coming in. You can basically make sure that our stuff is or yeah. on the same box or zone or whatever right based uh, on queue length you know if you have many messages waiting in the queue to be service processed, discovery that'll spin up another instance service discovery is something which our uh, kubernetes does very well uh, let's see yes right? uh, so it, it has a tax thing isn't it you deploy your your little a, a pod i think it's called a pod. yeah it becomes a pod exactly so you it has a pod it has one or more containers in a pod isn't mm -hmm. it that's how it works exactly and then the load balancer just says um all the pods that have a particular tag 
Exactly. Or now in my load balancing group. I yeah, think there are multiple multiple definitions. There are services, definitions, whatever, right? So I uh, I don't know it out of my head, but yeah, um, exact. So you can have you can even plug in uh, external load or or hardware load balancers yes. and stuff like this, right? Uh, okay, yeah. It has stateful sets for the uh, um, storage, let's say, right, which is relevant for let's say disk and database systems. Uh, because, uh, and this is a bit controversial, it was for a long time while controversial. Um, I think uh, stateful sets were not there from the very beginning. And now it's uh, um, they are solving this, this problem. Uh, so let's say Kubernetes as the operating system for microservices makes totally sense for the state less part right let's say the, the service instance itself and as mentioned before the database is typically not uh not stateless right the database is basically this <laughs> the thing which 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 kind of that's gives a, you the state now you can say you can business idea yeah, stateless database exactly but the the thing is now the following the database uh syst or database itself Become, becomes a service as well, right? I mean, not really a domain-specific microservice. Let's call it something like an infrastructure service or whatever. But there, there is this notion, right? So it becomes a kind of infrastructure service in in a sense by itself, the database system, right? Uh, which which means that uh, you now need to find a way to deal with state in Kubernetes. And initially, Kubernetes did a very bad job doing this, right? Because the idea was, ah, we don't care where the state is, right? If something fails, we just spin it up and that's it and we might spin it up somewhere on a different machine but uh yeah let's say some NoSQL database systems are are, yeah. are are kind of expecting that the the state is as local as possible to access it or uh, let's say others can live with something like sans and so on depends on if they are memory first or also redis is also using persistence but uh, everything goes through memory let's say which means that uh, it's not as uh, disk io bound but other database systems like relational database systems are much more disk io bound which means they they would like to have the state usually on on something like a local disk but this is it was against the concept of uh, let's say uh kubernetes and i think it still is to a specific degree but uh, stateful sets uh, kind of solved this problem uh, uh to a specific extent uh, let's say right yeah so uh so happy world right uh, uh, which means that yeah sure uh, it's the operating system for microservices but it took a while uh, until uh, it basically learned to deal with state right interesting so i wonder if that if that statefulness works similar to service fabric maybe if i quickly describe i already talked about ah, no, i know i don't think so uh, but uh, yeah uh, i mean maybe you we can talk about service fabric uh in a, in a second uh uh we are still over already over time but i think now it doesn't matter anymore uh, we can yeah, just it's, continue it's, to it's, be it's, over time our dear yeah, listeners I'm, sorry for that right but uh <laughs> i was just talking I, 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 too much right so given the fact yes. that i wasn't prepared i wouldn't wasn't expecting to talk that much but uh yeah i apologize just it just that, happened right <laughs> so. it's, it's that fountain of knowledge that's uh, what it is yeah. It's just flooding it's out of me uh, for good or bad. Who knows, <laughs> right? Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, Thomas, okay. then let's just, go back to just, the yeah. script, maybe. Uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about, um, I think, our service fabric. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, you've, you've already sort of ticked Kubernetes off the list. That, exactly. That is, and then Depar, De, Depar, Depar or Dapar, yeah, how so, is this called? 
it's it's interesting to see Dapper in context of Service Dapper, Fabric. Okay. So Service Fabric is years old. It's older than Kubernetes. It's older than all these newfangled things. And it does basically the same thing. The entire Azure cloud runs on Service Fabric, right? So it, it is it is stable, it is proven, it is a good technology. Unfortunately, nobody likes it anymore and everyone migrates off of it. So it's also Maybe it problem. doesn't run on it, Linux, right? I'm just kidding. But. <laughs> there, there is that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the, the problem with it is that it's, it's almost too good in a way, right? So you have to... Okay, so what is Service Fabric? In, in a nutshell, I already said it. It's, it's an application server for microservices. It handles load balancing. It handles stateless. And now that we've explained all these concepts, I can just mention them and everything is clear. Fantastic. So it handles load balancing for stateless servers and it manages stateful services with that approach of sharding and this actor model that a, an instance of a microservice is responsible for specific shard and there's also a sort of a standby replica somewhere else, you know, that is in case a particular node goes down of the application server that takes over, you know, the standard high availability stuff. The problem why nobody likes it anymore is that it is not just an application server. It goes much, much further. It is an SDK. So you are bound to your programming language. So you need to code in C sharp. Right, so you need to call these, you need to path this SDK, the service fabric SDK in your solution. You need to structure your solution in a certain way. It's very restrictive, which was people don't like. But what you get back from that is sort of fully managed uh, application software. I can scale up, scale down, have auto scaling, and the code becomes very, very simple. The code is literally, um, hey, um, I want to send this data packet to the customer microservice. Right. And then the framework just says, yep, I'll have that. I'll do that for you. I'll, I'll care about the discovery and the statefulness uh, just for you. And if you, if you want to save your state, you just say, okay, here's this object. Persist this for me, please. And yeah. then Service Fabric says, yep, that's persisted. Right. And, you know, it's super powerful, but the restrictiveness means it's totally gone out of fashion. And now in comes Dapper, which is kind of sort of meant to be the next level of service fabric but in a way that is more modern that's more how we do things now it's open source of course everything on microservices is, a, is open source these days you know these old dark days are over and i hope they never come back so it's open source what you do it offers you what is called a sidecar in your container right so it it runs inside of your container as a little sort of side process and you interact with it uh, in, in in various ways so let's let's for now for concept just say you interact with it just by having an http call to localhost on a certain port right and that is the endpoint that dapper exposes inside of your little container and then this Dapper sidecar in that one container talks to the other Dapper sidecar in the other container and does the whole communication discovery thing that Source Fabric did. It's pluggable. So it's, so a, can, it's a sidecar is like a proxy then or a co-located proxy of, for the service? Or? Yeah, co-located proxy. Yeah, I think the, the word sidecar comes from that layered architecture, right? Okay. So it's, it's, it's a block that sits next to the layers. It's not underneath a particular layer. 
Okay. Yeah, so so all layers can talk to the uh, to Kubernetes the side has this term as well, right? So meaning meaning in right. Kubernetes you can have sidecar containers or at least uh, I'm not sure if it's an official term, but I've seen such uh, such deployments where you had basically uh, together to our let's say to your container you had sidecar containers that then kind of uh, took some. Uh, responsibility of an operation in nature, right? So meaning yeah. uh, they, they kind of uh, configured uh, the database or whatever. Nowadays, I think the, for at least for database systems, you would not use sidecars anymore. There There is a new approach, which is, which is the operator pattern, let's say, right? So you basically implement an operator and they are kind of uh, natively supported in, in order to take care of all the operational aspects like administration and stuff like this of database systems uh, in if you deploy okay. database systems on on kubernetes and they do something like uh, they allow you to do something like upgrades or have the logic for okay, doing this gotcha. usually implemented in code right and instead of just declaring uh, how stuff uh, goes or they they actually have code which interacts uh, are quite tightly with the kubernetes apis right for so Oh, yeah. I see. So, so, so it thinks like thinks like if you if you deploy an update, then only ever ten percent of the containers can be down and have yeah, an exactly. Is it that Rolling sort of thing? stuff like this, or even okay, scaling, gotcha. they can do right by taking a good example is or uh, let's say our database systems or NoSQL database systems are usually have something like uh, availability zone support. So Redis Enterprise, for instance, does have this as well, where you can define specific availability zones in order to make sure that two copies of the data never land in the same availability zone. Now, uh, Kubernetes has a similar concept, right? And uh, now you need to to kind of educate uh, uh, Kubernetes to to actually place the containers uh, uh, which are representing your nodes uh, of the data of your distributed database system in a in a way that it reflects the availability zones which you defined for this cluster mm. in alignment with the availability zones that are used by Kubernetes, right? And uh, something like this, for instance, uh, sense, when yeah. scaling your cluster, could be done by an operator as well because the operator can then basically talk with Kubernetes uh, uh, directly and ask, "Hey, I, uh, what are your availability zones? Where could we place this node?" Uh, right? Yeah. So. The operator has a notion of a database node, whereby uh, Kubernetes indeed uh, only has a notion of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, a pod. Or, or, uh, Interesting. Because that type of thing sort of is on another layer, so it's on, on a sort of higher or deeper layer, depending on which way you look at it. It just says, you know, it solves the same problem as Service Fabric said. You know, when, when one microservice says, okay, send this object to the customer microservices. You just give it to your Dapper sidecar and it does the discovery. So, you know, it's on a different level than an operator, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's also a, exactly. It's, it's, I, it's I, a I know exactly. Thing. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, I was just mixing it in because the sidecar stuff was uh, usually used, uh, at least for database systems and Kubernetes oh, for I operational okay. reasons, right? Uh, so I yeah. might have uh, mixed this topic by accident a bit up. Uh, okay. say, right? But yeah, yeah. cool. Make, makes sense. Uh, so, sounds interesting. Sounds like, like yeah, something like a co-located proxy plus or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. It's definitely an interesting technology, something I will I will keep an eye on. They they have the the thing I like is that they have this open architecture of plugins. They call it capabilities, I think, if I remember correctly. I think it already supports things like persisting to Firebase. I'm sure it's possible to write a plugin for you know Redis persistence and or maybe caching. Whatever caching you like. seems to be uh, actually caching. 
looking exactly. at it, it's like like a little bit what you could do is and and this is uh, I mean stepping a little bit out of this uh, kind of uh, platform as a service, but uh, you you know or uh, in in programming there there is this notion of an aspect right so aspect oriented programming mm. where you basically are um, add some some side functionality which is not actually adding functionality but uh, useful uh, useful side functionality let's say right um, as an aspect right it's a, it's an aspect of something uh, for instance locking right so instead of yes. uh, writing lock files in a, in the code you would kind of uh, associate an aspect to a method or and then uh, would implement the locking functionality within this aspect let's say right and mm -hmm. uh, uh, what how you can do this uh, um, right uh, as one implementation example i'm not sure how uh, if this is always the case but uh, one way to implement it is to have a proxy right so basically a proxy class which basically are calls the methods of your uh, your actual implementation of the class and and wraps the the uh, the the actual implementation with some aspect oriented stuff right or aspect yeah and it sounds like the par uh, with this kind of proxy plus is 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 more or less like this right so if we would kind of uh, conceptually architecturally see it we say okay fine we have our service which is providing our uh, let's say a specific uh, contract or interface right uh, a specific api and now what depo is doing uh, is okay they basically take care of making this uh, the service discoverable right so maybe crying out the name but they also i i'm I don't know it, right? Just interpretation now from what you said. They might mm -hmm. also add some aspects to it, right? Like, uh, okay, we, we yep. can now basically cache API calls or we can basically lock out uh, stuff for auditing purposes or we can uh, do some additional authentication or uh, mechanisms yes. on top of this service because this is now all handled by this sidecar as a kind mm -hmm. of aspect instead of uh, yeah, core functionality. Yeah, that's exactly the idea, I think. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Nice. Then I got so, this. Yeah, something right. to keep an eye on. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes <just> I have <laughs> pride moments, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to be patronizing. If I was, I apologize. Nah, but just yes. kidding. Yeah, so, just yeah. kidding. <laughs> it's all good. Cool. Yeah, I think I think we may have reached the end of our script. Yeah, we don't have a script. Listeners, dear listeners, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. we Sorry, don't have a script. It's uh, yeah, all freestyle conversation. But I, I, honestly, I lying, okay, fine. Yeah, to be, to be honest, we have a script, right? But uh, <laughs> it's it's really a very short one. And it's really just a, a, a set of bullet points where we kind of uh, yeah. write down ideas. And then as you could probably see here in this conversation, uh, most of the stuff, uh, even if it's not prepared, just develops a talk, uh, which also makes it sometimes hard to... Uh, kind of stick with one hour duration of the recording. Yeah. Uh, we now have we, we'll one figure hour it out. 36 regarding my clock, right? Yeah. We'll figure it out. One day, we'll figure it one out. One day. <laughs> 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 anyway, cool. Um, yeah, I think it was, it was a nice episode. A lot of stuff inside it, not just uh, not just microservices. Also, I managed to mix a lot of database stuff in, right? Uh, <laughs> always good. Again. That... <laughs> anyway. As you do. It's good. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. Yeah, me too. And... Um, so thank you very much, Thomas. And uh, thank you for listening, uh, our dear listeners. Uh, again, we, we have some... some uh, 
this is those that are sticking with us, right? Which is really cool. This is so crazy. Thanks to you, uh, right? Masochist. Michael. Uh, no, it's just, it's more than one person. But, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we call out Michael because we, we know him personally, right? And um, actually, I think we should invite him to one of the next episodes. Uh, oh, yes. Or oh, to yes. discuss about uh, one of the topics he likes, right? Uh, cool. That'd be pretty cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. let's do this. Uh, Michael, we promise we will reach out to you and we will uh, kind of include you in one of the next episodes of Crumpy Old Coders. If, if you want. Okay, so thank you very much and uh, see you. Bye.